Everybody dies, don't they? Everybody come back, don't they? Isn't that so? You tried to get into the locked room today, didn't you? How do the dead come back, Mother? What's the secret? The Grey Woman by Elizabeth Gaskell Portion 2 A Norman woman, a man by name, was sent to Les Rochers by the Paris milliner to become my maid. She was tall, handsome, though upwards of forty, and somewhat gaunt. But on first seeing her, I liked her. She was neither rude nor familiar in her manners, and had a pleasant look of straightforwardness about her that I had missed in all the inhabitants of the chateau, and had foolishly set down in my mind as a national want. A manse was directed by Monsieur de la Tourelle to sit in my boudoir, and to be always within call. He also gave her many instructions as to her duties in matters which, perhaps, strictly, belonged to my department of management. But I was young and inexperienced, and thankful to be spared the responsibility. I dare say it was true what Monsieur de la Tourelle said, before many weeks had elapsed, that for a great lady, a lady of a castle, I became sadly too familiar with my Norman waiting-maid. But you know that by birth we were not very far apart in rank. Amance was the daughter of a Norman farmer, I of a German miller, and besides that, my life was so lonely. It almost seemed as if I couldn't please my husband. He had written for someone capable of being my companion at times, and now he was jealous of my free regard for her angry because I could sometimes laugh at her original tunes and amusing proverbs, while when with him I was too much frightened to smile. From time to time families from a distance of some leagues drove through the bad roads in their heavy carriages to pay us a visit, and there was an occasional talk of our going to Paris when public affairs should be a little more settled. These little events and plans were the only variations in my life for the first twelve months, if I accept the alternations in Monsieur de Tourelle's temper, his unreasonable anger, and his passionate fondness. Perhaps one of the reasons that made me take pleasure and comfort in Amant's society was that whereas I was afraid of everybody, I do not think I was half as much afraid of things as of persons. Amant feared no one. She would quietly beard Lefebvre, and he respected her all the more for it. She had a knack of putting questions to Monsieur de la Tourelle, which respectfully informed him that she had detected the weak point, but forbore to press him too closely upon it out of deference to his position as her master. And with all her shrewdness to others, she had quite tender ways with me, all the more so at this time, because she knew what I had not yet ventured to tell Monsieur de la Tourelle, that by and by I might become a mother, that wonderful object of mysterious interest to single women who no longer hope to enjoy such blessedness themselves. It was once more autumn, late in October, but I was reconciled to my habitation. The walls of the new part of the building no longer looked bare and desolate. The debris had been so far cleared away by Monsieur de la Tourelle's desire as to make me a little flower garden, in which I tried to cultivate those plants that I remembered as growing at home. Amant and I had moved the furniture in the rooms and adjusted it to our liking. My husband had ordered many an article from time to time that he thought would give me pleasure, and I was becoming tame to my apparent imprisonment in a certain part of the great building, the whole of which I had never yet explored. It was October, as I say, once more. The days were lovely, though short in duration, 
and Monsieur de la Tourelle had occasion, so he said, to go to that distant estate, the superintendence of which so frequently took him away from home. He took Lefebvre with him, and possibly some more of the lackeys. He often did. And my spirits rose a little at the thought of his absence. And then the new sensation, that he was the father of my unborn babe, came over me, and I tried to invest him with this fresh character. I tried to believe that it was his passionate love for me that made him so jealous and tyrannical, imposing, as he did, restrictions on my very intercourse with my dear father, from whom I was so entirely separated insofar as personal intercourse was concerned. I had, it's true, let myself go into a sorrowful review of all the troubles which lay hidden beneath the seeming luxury of my life. I knew that no one cared for me except my husband and amant, for it was clear enough to see that I, as his wife, and also as a parvenu, was not popular among the few neighbours who surrounded us. And as for the servants, the women were all hard and impudent-looking, treating me with a semblance of respect that had more mockery than reality in it, while the men had a lurking kind of fierceness about them, sometimes displayed even to Monsieur de Littorel, who, on his part, it must be confessed, was often severe even to cruelty in his management of them. My husband loved me, I said to myself, but I said it almost in the form of a question. His love was shown fitfully, and more in ways calculated to please himself than to please me. I felt that for no wish of mine would he deviate one tittle from any predetermined course of action. I had learnt the inflexibility of those thin, delicate lips. I knew how anger would turn his fair complexion to deadly white and bring the cruel light into his pale blue eyes. The love I bore to anyone seemed to be a reason for his hating them, and so I went on pitying myself one long dreary afternoon during that absence of his of which I have spoken, only sometimes remembering to check myself in my murmurings by thinking of the new, unseen link between us, and then crying afresh to think how wicked I was. Oh, how well I remember that long October evening. A man came in from time to time, talking away to cheer me, talking about dress and Paris, and I hardly know what, but from time to time looking at me keenly with her friendly dark eyes, and with serious interest too, though all her words were about frivolity. At length she heaped a fire with wood, drew the heavy silken curtains close, for I had been anxious hitherto to keep them open so that I might see the pale moon mounting the skies, as I used to see her, the same moon, rise from behind the Kaiserstuhl at Heidelberg. But the sight made me cry, so Amant shut it out. She dictated to me as a nurse does to a child. Now Madame must have the little kitten to keep her company, she said, while I go and ask Marton for a cup of coffee. I remember that speech and the way it roused me, for I did not like Amant to think I wanted amusing by a kitten. It might have been my petulance, but this speech, such as she might have made to a child, annoyed me, and I said that I had reason for my lowness of spirits, meaning that they were not of so imaginary a nature that I could be diverted from them by the gambols of a kitten. So, though I didn't choose to tell her all, I told her a part, and as I spoke, I began to suspect that the good creature knew much of what I withheld and that the little speech about the kitten was more thoughtfully kind than it had seemed at first. I said that it was so long since I had heard from my father that he was an old man 
and so many things might happen. I might never see him again, and I so seldom heard from him or my brother. It was a more complete and total separation than I had ever anticipated when I married, and something of my home and of my life previous to my marriage I told the good amount, for I had not been brought up as a great lady, and the sympathy of any human being was precious to me. Amand listened with interest, and in return told me some of the events and sorrows of her own life. Then, remembering her purpose, she set out in search of the coffee, which ought to have been brought to me an hour before, but, in my husband's absence, my wishes were seldom attended to, and I never dared to give orders. Presently she returned, bringing the coffee and a great large cake. See, she said, setting it down, look at my plunder. Madame must eat. Those who eat always laugh, and besides, I have a little news that will please Madame. Then she told me that lying on a table in the great kitchen was a bundle of letters come by the courier from Strasbourg that very afternoon. Then, fresh from her conversation with me, she had hastily untied the string that bound them, but had only just traced out one that she thought was from Germany when a servant man came in, and, with the start he gave her, she dropped the letters, which he picked up swearing at her for having untied and disarranged them. She told me that she believed there was a letter there for her mistress, but he only swore the more, saying, if there were, it was of no business of hers, or of his either, for that he had the strictest orders always to take all letters that arrived during his master's absence into the private sitting-room of the latter, a room into which I had never entered, although it opened out of my husband's dressing-room. I asked Amand if she had not conquered and brought me this letter. No, indeed, she replied. It was almost as much as her life was worth to live among such a set of servants. It was only a month ago that Jacques had stabbed Valentin for some jesting talk. Had I never missed Valentin, that handsome young lad who carried up the wood into my salon? Poor fellow, he lies dead and cold now, and they said in the village he had put an end to himself, but those of the household knew better. Oh, I need not be afraid, Jacques was gone, no one knew where, but with such people it wasn't safe to upbraid or insist. Monsieur would be at home the next day, and it wouldn't be long to wait. But I felt as if I couldn't resist till the next day without the letter. It might be to say that my father was ill, dying. He might cry for his daughter from his deathbed. In short, there was no end to the thoughts and fancies that haunted me. It was of no use for a man to say that, after all, she might be mistaken, that she did not read writing well, that she had but a glimpse of the address. I let my coffee cool. My food all became distasteful and I wrung my hands with impatience to get at the letter and have some news of my dear ones at home. All the time Amant kept her imperturbable good temper, first reasoning, then scolding. At last she said, as if wearied out, that if I would consent to make a good supper, she would see what could be done as to our going to Monsieur's room in search of the letter after the servants were all gone to bed. We agreed to go together when all was still and look over the letters, there could be no harm in that, and yet somehow we were such cowards we dared not do it openly and in the face of the household. Presently my supper came up, partridges, bread, fruits and cream. How well I remember that supper. We put the untouched cake away in a sort of buffet and poured the cold coffee out of the window in order that the servants might not take offence at the apparent fancifulness of sending down for food I couldn't eat. I was so anxious for all to be in bed, that I told the footman who served 
that he need not wait to take away the plates and dishes, but might go to bed. Long after I thought the house was quiet, a aunt in her caution made me wait. It was past eleven before we set out, with cat-like steps and veiled light along the passages, to go into my husband's room and steal my own letter, if it was there indeed. A fact about which Amant had become very uncertain in the progress of our discussion. To make you understand my story, I must now try to explain to you the plan of the chateau. It had been at one time a fortified place of some strength, perched on the summit of a rock which projected from the side of the mountain, but additions had been made to the old building which must have borne a strong resemblance to the castles overhanging the Rhine, and these new buildings were placed so as to command a magnificent view being on the steepest side of the rock from which the mountain fell away, as it were, leaving the great plain of France in full survey. The ground plan was something of the shape of three sides of an oblong. My apartments in the modern edifice occupied the narrow end, and had this grand prospect. The front of the castle was old, and ran parallel to the road far below. In this were contained the offices and public rooms of various descriptions, into which I never penetrated. The back wing, considering the new building in which my apartments were as the centre, consisted of many rooms of a dark and gloomy character as the mountainside shut out much of the sun and heavy pine woods came down within a few yards of the windows. Yet on this side, on a projecting plateau of the rock, my husband had formed a flower garden of which I have spoken, for he was a great cultivator of flowers in his leisure moments. Now my bedroom was at the corner room of the new buildings on the part next to the mountain. Hence I could have let myself down into the flower garden by my hands on the windowsill on one side without danger of hurting myself, while the windows at right angles with these looked sheer down a descent of a hundred feet at least. Going still farther along this wing, you came to the old building. In fact, these two fragments of the ancient castle had formerly been attached by some such connecting apartments, as my husband had rebuilt. These rooms belonged to Monsieur de la Tourelle. His bedroom opened into mine, his dressing-room lay beyond, and that was pretty nearly all I knew, for the servants, as well as he himself, had a knack of turning me back under some pretense, if ever they found me walking about alone, as I was inclined to do when I first came, from a sort of curiosity to see the whole of the place of which I found myself mistress. Monsieur de la Tourelle never encouraged me to go out alone, either in a carriage or for a walk, saying always that the roads were unsafe in those disturbed times. Indeed, I have sometimes fancied since that the flower garden, to which the only access from the castle was through his rooms, was designed in order to give me exercise and employment under his own eye. But to return to that night, I knew, as I have said, that Monsieur de la Tourelle's private room opened out of his dressing-room, and this out of his bedroom, which again opened into mine, the corner-room. But there were other doors into all these rooms, and these doors led into a long gallery, lighted by windows, looking into the inner court. Uh, I do not remember our consulting much about it. We went through my room, into my husband's apartment, through the dressing-room, but the door of communication into his study was locked, so there was nothing for it but to turn back and go by the gallery to the other door. I recollect noticing one or two things in these rooms, 
then seen by me for the first time. I remember the sweet perfume that hung in the air, the scent bottles of silver that decked his toilet table, and the whole apparatus for bathing and dressing, more luxurious even than those which he had provided for me. But the room itself was less splendid in its proportions than mine. In truth, the new buildings ended at the entrance to my husband's dressing room. There were deep window recesses in walls eight or nine feet thick, and even the partitions between the chambers were three feet deep. But over all these doors or windows there fell thick, heavy draperies, so that I should think no one could have heard in one room what passed in another. We went back into my room and out into the gallery. We had to shade our candle from a fear that possessed us. I don't know why, that some of the servants in the opposite wing might trace our progress towards the part of the castle unused by anyone except my husband. Somehow, I had always the feeling that all the domestics, except Amant, were spies upon me, and that I was trammelled in a web of observation and unspoken limitation extending over all my actions. There was a light in the upper room. We paused, and Amant would have again retreated, but I was chafing under the delays. What was the harm of my seeking my father's unopened letter to me in my husband's study? I, generally the coward, now blamed Amant for her unusual timidity. But the truth was, she had far more reason for suspicion as to the proceedings of that terrible household than I had ever known of. I urged her on. I pressed on myself. We came to the door, locked, but with the key in it. We turned it. We entered. The letters lay on the table, their white oblongs catching the light in an instant and revealing themselves to my eager eyes, hungering after the words of love from my peaceful, distant home. But just as I pressed forward to examine the letters, the candle, which Amant held, caught in some draught, went out, and we were in darkness. Amant proposed that we should carry the letters back to my salon, collecting them as well as we could in the dark and returning all but the expected one for me, but I begged her to return to my room where I kept tinder and flint and to strike a fresh light, and so she went, and I remained alone in the room, of which I could only just distinguish the size and the principal articles of the furniture, a, a large table with a deep overhanging cloth in the middle, escritoires and other heavy articles against the walls. All this I could see as I stood there, my hand on the table close by the letters, my face towards the window, which both from the darkness of the wood growing high up the mountainside and the faint light of the declining moon seemed only like an oblong of paler purpler black than a shadowy room. How much I remembered from my one instantaneous glance before the candle went out, how much I saw as my eyes became accustomed to the darkness, I do not know. But even now, in my dreams comes up that room of horror, distinct in its profound shadow. A man could hardly have been gone a minute before I felt an additional gloom before the window and heard soft movements outside, soft but resolute, and continued until the end was accomplished and the window raised. In mortal terror of people forcing an entrance at such an hour and in such a manner as to leave no doubt of their purpose, I would have turned to fly when I first heard the noise, 
only that I feared by any quick motion to catch their attention, and as I also ran the danger of doing so by opening the door which was all but closed, and to whose handlings I was unaccustomed, again, quick as lightning, I bethought me of a hiding place between the locked door to my husband's dressing room and the portiere which covered it, but I gave that up. I felt as if I couldn't reach it without screaming or fainting. So I sank down softly and crept under the table, hidden, as I hoped, by the great deep table cover with its heavy fringe. I had not recovered my swooning senses fully and was trying to reassure myself as to my being in a place of comparative safety, for above all things I dreaded the betrayal of fainting and struggled hard for such courage as I might attain by deadening myself to the danger I was in by inflicting intense pain on myself. You have often asked me the reason of that mark on my hand. It was where, in my agony, I bit out a piece of my flesh with my relentless teeth, thankful for the pain which helped to numb my terror. I say I was but just concealed when I heard the window lifted, and one after another stepped over the still. I say I was but just concealed when I heard the window lifted, and one after another stepped over the sill, and stood by me so close that I could have touched their feet. They laughed and whispered. My brain swam so that I couldn't tell the meaning of their words, but I heard my husband's laughter amongst the rest, low, hissing, scornful, as he kicked something heavy that they had dragged in over the floor, and which lay near me, so near me that my husband's kick in touching it touched me too. I don't know why, I can't tell how, but some feeling, and not curiosity, prompted me to put out my hand ever so softly, ever so little, and feel in the darkness for what lay spurned beside me. I stole my groping palm upon the clenched and chilly hand of a corpse. Strange to say, this roused me to instant vividness of thought. Till this moment I had almost forgotten Amant. Now I planned with feverish rapidity how I could give her a warning not to return. Or rather, I should say, I tried to plan, for all my projects were utterly futile, as I might have seen from the first. I could only hope she would hear the voices of those who were now busy in trying to kindle a light, swearing awful oaths at the mislaid articles which would have enabled them to strike fire. I heard her step outside coming nearer and nearer, I saw from my hiding place the line of light beneath the door more and more distinctly. Close to it, her footstep paused. The men inside, at the time I thought they had been only two, but I found out afterwards there were three, paused in their endeavours and were quite still. As breathless as myself, I suppose. Then she slowly pushed the door open with gentle motion to save her flickering candle from being again extinguished. For a moment, all was still. Then I heard my husband say, as he advanced towards her, he wore riding boots, the shape of which I knew well, as I could see them in the light. Amant, may I ask what brings you here into my private room? He stood between her and the dead body of a man, from which ghastly heap I shrank away, as it almost touched me, so close were we all together. I couldn't tell whether she saw it or not, I could give her no warning, nor make any dumb utterance of signs to bid her what to say, if indeed I knew myself what would be best for her to say. 
Her voice was quite changed when she spoke, quite hoarse and very low, yet it was steady enough as she said what was the truth that she had come to look for a letter which she believed had arrived from me from Germany. Good, brave amant, not a word about me. Monsieur de la Tourelle answered with a grim blasphemy and a fearful threat. He would have no one prying into his premises. Madame should have her letters, if there were any, when he chose to give them to her, if indeed he thought it well to give them to her at all. As for Amant, this was her first warning, but it was also her last, and taking the candle out of her hand, he turned her out of the room, his companions discreetly making a screen so as to throw the corpse into deep shadow. I heard the key turn in the door after her, if I had ever had any thought of escape. It was gone now. I only hoped that whatever was to befall me might soon be over, for the tension of nerve was growing more than I could bear. The instant she could be supposed to be out of hearing, two voices began speaking in the most angry terms to my husband, upbraiding him for not having detained her, gagged her, nay, one was for killing her, saying he had seen her eye fall on the face of the dead man, whom he now kicked in his passion. Though the form of their speech was as if they were speaking to equals, yet in their tone there was something of fear. I'm sure my husband was their superior or captain or somewhat. He replied to them almost as if he were scoffing at them, saying it was such an expenditure of labour having to do with fools, that ten to one the woman was only telling the simple truth, and that she was frightened enough by discovering her master in his room to be thankful to escape and return to her mistress, to whom he could easily explain on the morrow how he happened to return in the dead of night. But his companions fell to cursing me, and saying that since Monsieur de la Tourelle had been married, he was fit for nothing but to dress himself fine and scent himself with perfume, that as for me, they could have got him twenty girls prettier and with far more spirit in them. He quietly answered that I suited him, and that was enough. All this time they were doing something, I couldn't see what, to the corpse. Sometimes they were too busy rifling the dead body, I believe, to talk. Again they let it fall with a heavy, resistless thud, and took to quarrelling. They taunted my husband with angry vehemence, enraged at his scoffing and scornful replies, his mocking laughter, yes, holding up his poor dead victim to better strip him of whatever he wore that was valuable. I heard my husband laugh just as he had done when exchanging repartees in the little salon of the Ruprechts at Karlsruhe. I hated and dreaded him from that moment. At length, as if to make an end of the subject, he said with cool determination in his voice, Now, my good friends, what is the use of all this talking when you know in your hearts that if I suspected my wife of knowing more than I chose of my affairs, she wouldn't outlive the day? Remember Victorine, because she merely joked about my affairs in an imprudent manner and rejected my advice to keep a prudent tongue to see what she liked, but ask nothing and say nothing. She has gone on a long journey, longer than to Paris. But this one is different to her. We knew all that Madame Victorine knew. She was such a chatterbox. But this one may find out a vast deal and never breathe a word about it. She's so sly. Some fine day we may have the country raised and the gendarme down upon us from Strasbourg 
and all owing to your pretty doll with her cunning ways of coming over you. I think this roused Monsieur de la Tourelle a little from his contemptuous indifference, for he ground an oath through his teeth. He said, Feel, this dagger is sharp, Henri. If my wife breathes a word, and I am such a fool as not to have stopped her mouth effectually before she can bring down gendarme upon us, just let that good steel find its way into my heart. Let her guess but one tittle, let her have but one slight suspicion that I am not a grand propriétaire, much less imagine that I am a chief of chauffeurs, and she follows Victorine on the long journey beyond Paris that very day. She'll outwit you yet, or I never judged women well. Those still silent ones are the devil. She'll be off during some of your absences, having picked out some secret that'll break us all on the wheel. Bah, said his voice, and then in a moment he added, let her go if she will, but where she goes, I will follow, so don't cry before you're hurt. By this time they had nearly stripped the body, and the conversation turned on what they should do with it. I learned that the dead man was a sieur de Poissy, a neighbouring gentleman, whom I had often heard of as hunting with my husband. I had never seen him, but they spoke as if he had come upon them while they were robbing some Cologne merchant, torturing him after the cruel practice of the chauffeur by roasting the feet of their victims in order to compel them to reveal any hidden circumstances connected with their wealth, of which the chauffeurs afterwards made use. And this sieur de Poissy coming down upon them, and recognising Monsieur de la Tourelle, they had killed him, and brought him thither after nightfall. I heard him, whom I called my husband, laugh his little light laugh as he spoke of the way in which the dead body had been strapped before one of the riders, in such a way that it appeared to any passer-by as if, in truth, the murderer were tenderly supporting some sick person. He repeated some mocking reply of double meaning, which he himself had given to someone who made inquiry. He enjoyed the play upon words, softly applauding his own wit. And all the time, the poor helpless outstretched arms of the dead lay close to his dainty boot. Then another stooped, my heart stopped beating, and picked up a letter lying on the ground, a letter that had dropped out of Monsieur de Poissy's pocket, a letter from his wife, full of tender words of endearment and pretty babblings of love. This was read aloud with coarse, ribald comments on every sentence, each trying to outdo the previous speaker. When they came to some pretty words about a sweet Maurice, the little child away with its mother on some visit, they laughed at Monsieur de la Tourelle, and told him that he would be hearing such woman's driveling some day. Up to that moment, I think, I had only feared him, but his unnatural, half-ferocious reply made me hate even more than I dreaded him. But now they grew weary of their savage merriment, the jewels and the watch had been apprised, the money and papers examined, and apparently there was some necessity for the body being interred quietly and before daybreak. They had not dared to leave him where he was slain, for fear lest people should come and recognize him, and raise the hue and cry upon them. For they all along spoke, as if it was their constant endeavor to keep the immediate neighborhood of Les Rochers in the most orderly and tranquil condition, so as never to give cause for visits from the gendarmes. They disputed a little as to whether they should make their way into the castle larder through the gallery and satisfy their hunger before the hasty internment, or afterwards. 
I listened with eager, feverish interest as soon as this meaning of their speeches reached my hot and troubled brain, for at the time the words they uttered seemed only to stamp themselves with terrible force on my memory, so that I could hardly keep from repeating them aloud like a dull, miserable, unconscious echo, but my brain was numb to the sense of what they said, unless I myself were named, and then, I suppose, some instinct of self-preservation stirred within me and quickened my sense and how I strained my ears and nerved my hands and limbs, beginning to twitch with convulsive movements which I feared might betray me. I gathered every word they spoke, not knowing which proposal to wish for, but feeling that whatever was finally decided upon, my only chance of escape was drawing near. I once feared lest my husband should go to his bedroom before I had had that one chance, in which case he would most likely have perceived my absence. He said that his hands were soiled. I shuddered for it might be with lifeblood, and he would go and cleanse them, but some bitter jest turned his purpose, and he left the room with the other two, left it by the gallery door, left me alone in the dark with the stiffening corpse. Now, now was my time, if ever, and yet I couldn't move. It wasn't my cramped and stiffened joints that crippled me. It was the sensation of that dead man's close presence. I almost fancied I almost fancy still. I heard the arm nearest to me move, lift itself up, as if once more imploring, and fall in dead despair. At that fancy, if fancy it were, I screamed aloud in mad terror, and the sound of my own strange voice broke the spell. I drew myself to the side of the table farthest from the corpse, with as much slow caution as if I really could have feared the clutch of that poor dead arm, powerless forevermore. I softly raised myself up and stood, sick and trembling, holding by the table, too dizzy to know what to do next. I nearly fainted when a low voice spoke, when Amant, from the outside of the door, whispered, Madame! The faithful creature had been on the watch, had heard my scream, and having seen the three ruffians troop along the gallery down the stairs and across the court to the offices in the other wing of the castle, she had stolen to the door of the room in which I was. The sound of her voice gave me strength. I walked straight towards it, as one benighted on a dreary moor, suddenly perceiving this small, steady light which tells of human dwellings, takes heart, and steers straight onward. Where I was, where that voice was, I knew not, but go to it I must, or die. The door once opened, I know not by which of us. I fell upon her neck, grasping her tight till my hands ached with the tension of their hold, yet she never uttered a word. Only she took me up into her vigorous arms and bore me to my room and laid me on my bed. I do not know more. As soon as I was placed there, I lost sense. I came to myself with the horrible dread lest my husband was by me, with the belief that he was in the room, in hiding, waiting to hear my first words, watching for the least sign of the terrible knowledge I possessed to murder me. I dared not breathe quicker, I measured and timed each heavy inspiration. I did not speak, nor move, nor even open my eyes, for long after I was in my full, my miserable senses. I heard someone treading softly about the room, as if with a purpose, not as if for curiosity, or merely to beguile the time. Someone passed in and out of the salon, and I still lay quiet, feeling as if death were inevitable, but wishing that the agony of death were past. Again, faintness stole over me, 
but just as I was sinking into the horrible feeling of nothingness, I heard a man's voice close to me saying, Drink this, madame, and let us be gone. All is ready. I let her put her arm under my head and raise me and pour something down my throat. All the time she kept talking in a quiet, measured voice, and like her own so dry and authoritative, she told me that a suit of her clothes lay ready for me, that she herself was as much disguised as the circumstances permitted her to be, that what provisions I had left from my supper were stowed away in her pockets, and so she went on, dwelling on little details of the most commonplace description, but never alluding for any instant to the fearful cause why flight was necessary. I made no inquiry as to how she knew or what she knew. I never asked her either then or afterwards. I could not bear it. We kept our dreadful secret close. But I suppose she must have been in the dressing room adjoining and heard all. In fact, I dared not speak even to her as if there were anything beyond the most common event in life in our preparing thus to leave the house of blood by stealth in the dead of night. She gave me directions, short, condensed directions, without reasons, just as you do to a child. And like a child, I obeyed her. She went often to the door and listened, and often too she went to the window and looked anxiously out. For me, I saw nothing but her, and I dared not let my eyes wander from her for a minute, and I heard nothing in the deep midnight silence but her soft movements and the heavy beating of my own heart. At last she took my hand and led me, in the dark, through the salon once more, into the terrible gallery where across the black darkness the windows admitted pale sheeted ghosts of light upon the floor. Clinging to her I went, unquestioning, for she was human sympathy to me after the isolation of my unspeakable terror. On we went, turning to the left instead of to the right, past my suite of sitting-rooms where the gilding was red with blood, into that unknown wing of the castle that fronted the main door lying parallel far below. She guided me along the basement passages to which we had now descended until we came to a little open door through which the air blew chill and cold, bringing for the first time sensation of life to me. The door led into a kind of cellar through which we groped our way to an opening like a window, but which, instead of being glazed, was only fenced with iron bars, two of which were loose, as Amant evidently knew, for she took them off with the ease of one who had performed the action often before, and then helped me to follow her out into the free, open air. We stole round the end of the building, and on turning the corner, she first, I felt her hold on me tighten for an instant, and the next step I too heard distant voices and the blows of a spade upon the heavy soil, for the night was very warm and still. We had not spoken a word, we did not speak now. Touch was safer and as expressive. She turned towards the high road. I followed. I didn't know the path. We stumbled again and again, and I was much bruised, so doubtless was she, but bodily pain did me good. At last we were on the plainer path of the high road. I had such faith in her that I didn't venture to speak even when she paused as wondering to which hand she should turn, but now for the first time she spoke. Which way did you come when he brought you here first? I pointed. I could not speak. We turned in the opposite direction, still going along the high road. In about an hour we struck up to the mountainside, scrambling far up before we even dared to rest 
far up and away again before day had fully dawned. Then we looked about for some place of rest and concealment, and now we dared to speak in whispers. Amant told me that she had locked the door of communication between his bedroom and mine, and, as in a dream, I was aware that she had also locked and brought away the key of the door between the latter and the salon. He will have been too busy this night to think much about you. He will suppose you are asleep. I shall be the first person to be missed, but they will only just now be discovering our loss. I remember those last words of hers made me pray to go on. I felt as if we were losing precious time in thinking either of rest or concealment, but she hardly replied to me, so busy was she in seeking out some hiding place. At length, giving it up in despair, we proceeded onwards a little way. The mountainside sloped downwards rapidly, and in the full morning light we saw ourselves in a narrow valley made by a stream which forced its way along it. About a mile lower down there rose the pale blue smoke of a village. A mill wheel was lashing up the water close at hand, though out of sight. Keeping under the cover of every sheltering tree or bush, we worked our way down past the mill, down to a one-arched bridge, which doubtless formed part of the road between the village and the mill. This will do, said she, and we crept under the space, and climbing a little way up the rough stonework, we seated ourselves on a projecting ledge and crouched in the deep, damp shadow. Amant sat a little above me and made me lay my head on her lap. Then she fed me and took some food herself, and opening out her great dark cloak, she covered up every light-coloured speck about us, and thus we sat, shivering and shuddering, yet feeling a kind of rest through it all, simply from the fact that motion was no longer imperative, and that during the daylight our only chance of safety was to be still. But the damp shadow in which we were sitting was blighting, from the circumstance of the sunlight never penetrating there, and I dreaded lest before night and the time for exertion again came on, I should feel illness creeping all over me. To add to our discomfort, it had rained the whole day long, and the stream, fed by a thousand little mountain brooklets, began to swell into a torrent, rushing over the stones with a perpetual and dizzying noise. Every now and then I was wakened from the painful doze in which, into which I continually fell by a sound of horses' feet over our head, sometimes lumbering heavily as if dragging a burden, sometimes rattling and galloping, and with the sharper cry of men's voices coming cutting through the roar of waters. At length, day fell. We had to drop into the stream which came above our knees as we waded to the bank. There we stood, stiff and shivering. Even a man's courage seemed to fail. We must pass this night in shelter, somehow, said she, for indeed the rain was coming down pitilessly. I said nothing. I thought that surely the end must be death in some shape, and I only hoped that to death might not be added the terror of the cruelty of men. In a minute or so she had resolved on her course of action. We went up the stream to the mill. The familiar sounds, the scent of wheat, the flour whitening the walls, all reminded me of home, and it seemed to me as if I must struggle out of this nightmare and waken and find myself once more a happy girl by the neck I side. They were long in unbarring the door at which Amant had knocked. At length an old, feeble voice inquired who was there and what was sought. Amant answered shelter from the storm for two women, but the old woman replied with suspicious hesitation that she was sure it was a man who was asking for shelter and that she could not let us in. But at length, 
she satisfied herself and unbarred the heavy door and admitted us. She was not an unkindly woman, but her thoughts all travelled in one circle, and that was that her master, the miller, had told her on no account to let any man into the place during his absence, and that she didn't know if he would not think two women as bad, and yet that as we were not men, no one could say that she had disobeyed him, for it was a shame to let a dog be out on such a night as this. Amant, with ready wit, told her to let no one know that we had taken shelter there that night, and that then her master couldn't blame her, and while she was thus enjoining secrecy as the wisest course, with a view to far other people than the miller, she was hastily helping me to take off my wet clothes, and spreading them as well as the brown mantle that had covered us both, before the great stove which warmed. The room with the effectual heat that the old woman's failing vitality required. All this time, the poor creature was discussing with herself as to whether she had disobeyed orders in a, in a kind of garrulous way that made me fear much for her capability of retaining anything secret if she were questioned. By and by, she wandered away to an unnecessary revelation of her master's whereabouts, gone to help in the search for his landlord, the Sieur de Poissy, who lived at the chateau just above and who had not returned from his chase the day before, so the intendant imagined he might have met with some accident and had summoned the neighbours to beat the forest and the hillside. She told us much beside, giving us to understand that she would fain meet with a place as a housekeeper where there were more servants and less to do, as her life here was very lonely and dull, especially since her master's son had gone away, gone to the wars. She then took her supper, which was evidently apportioned out to her with a sparing hand, as even if the idea had come into her head, she had not enough to offer us any. Fortunately, warmth was all that we required, and that, thanks to Amant's cares, was returning to our chilled bodies. After supper, the old woman grew drowsy, but she seemed uncomfortable at the idea of going to sleep and leaving us still in the house. Indeed, she gave us pretty broad hints as to the propriety of our going once more out into the bleak and stormy night, but we begged to be allowed to stay under shelter of some kind. And at last, a bright idea came over her, and she bade us mount by a ladder to a kind of loft, which went half over the lofty mill kitchen in which we were sitting. We obeyed her, but what else could we do, and found ourselves in a spacious floor, without any safeguard or wall, boarding or railing, to keep us from falling over into the kitchen, in case we went too near the edge. It was, in fact, the storeroom or garret for the household, there was bedding piled up, boxes and chests, mill sacks and winter stores of apples and nuts, bundles of old clothes, broken furniture, and many other things. No sooner were we up there than the old woman dragged the ladder by which we had ascended away with a chuckle, as if she was now secure that we could do no mischief, and sat herself down again once more, to doze and await her master's return. We pulled out some bedding, and gladly laid ourselves down in our dried clothes and in some warmth, hoping to have the sleep we so much needed to refresh us and prepare us for the next day. But I couldn't sleep, and I was aware from her breathing that Amant was equally wakeful. We could both see through the crevices between the boards that formed the flooring into the kitchen below, very partially lighted by the common lamp that hung against the wall near the stove on the opposite side to that on which we were. This is my commentary on part two of The Grey Woman by Elizabeth Gaskell. 
You've already heard that. I said, I don't know why I repeated it. So it is late and I've been editing and this story, as you know, was recommended and I'm enjoying it. In fact, I've finished it now, but it was in three parts of about an hour each. So it's, it's actually a novella, really. So um, it's quite long. What do I think about it? Well, I think it. I think she must have sat down. We know that she travelled, Elizabeth Gaskell travelled in Germany in the 1840s and then later used this material for stories like this. So she, I think she must have travelled in the Rhine area, along the Rhine. We've already talked in the previous thing about we have the honest, dependable Germans versus the sly French. However, Amant, who's Norman and a Norman peasant and down to, the, down to earth, is... Um, an exception to the rule. They're not all. She doesn't portray them all as, as sly, but there is this definite, this kind of uh, national prejudice going on here. It is a classic Gothic story. It's, it's, she must have sat down and decided she was going to put in the elements of the Gothic tale. So we have the remote and lonely castle with its mysterious rooms and passages. We've got a, a scene whereby candles are reflected in mirrors. We've got a search by candlelight. The candles blow out. We've got corpses. We've got um, untrustworthy servants. We've got a, a damsel who is a prisoner. So it's got all... In fact, the only thing it doesn't have is the overt supernatural element. And that's strange because she put that in a number of her other stories. So why she wouldn't put it in this one, I don't know, but there we are. There are a couple of um, things that struck me. Anna Scherer, who's the most beautiful woman, and this is why that man marries her, Monsieur de la Tourelle, he marries her because of her beauty. I wonder, I wonder what that's about, his, his actual... I wondered, as I was reading, what the actual state of his affection for her is. But anyway, she's a beautiful woman. And then she bites a chunk out of her hand under the table to stop herself being discovered. And later in part three, which we haven't got to yet, she, she knocks out one of her front, front teeth. So, you know, there's a lot of self-mutilation going on uh, to, to destroy her beauty. And I wonder what that actually means, whether that is... I, I'm too, it's too late for me to think anything smart about that at the moment. So do we have the, the servants? And of course... We have to introduce Amant as the trustee, whose name must mean something like beloved, like it's a, a French version potentially of the, the Latin Amanda, uh, she, uh, she who is to be loved, like Delenda Est Carthago, never mind. So that kind of thing, she who is to be loved. Anyway, so it's a nice name. There is another plot hole in this because in this part, Anna talks about how she had something in common with um, Amant because she's a German miller's daughter and Amant is the daughter of a Norman farmer. And then later on, part three, it becomes very important to the story that Amant is the daughter of a Norman tailor. So obviously that got through the editors. Amant has to exist so that we have some dialogue, otherwise it's just all going to be self-reflection, which would be dull. And when you read these Victorian stories, you, you are struck by how a modern editor just wouldn't let you do this. First of all, the very the introductory part about the English people going for tea at the mill and being given these documents and seeing the portrait is an unnecessary frame. We don't need that for the story. The other thing is, our protagonist, Anna Scherer, is essentially passive. She does not do anything. She is merely on the run, and if it wasn't for a month, and as you'll see in part three, it doesn't tie up satisfactorily either. You know, no way would this have got published, honestly. 
Uh, that isn't to say that it's a bad story. It isn't. It's just that the fashions change. And I only mention it because modern publishers will say, this is the way things must be. These are how stories must be to be successful. And clearly that is revealed by the fact that this was a very successful story as a fashion, pure fashion. So there we are, part two, very gothic, all, all the gothic elements apart from the supernatural. There is no supernatural element, I'll tell you now, in case you're waiting for it in part three, there is no supernatural element in this story. Nevertheless, it's more like an adventure story. It's more like something like um, Robinson Crusoe or um, later John Buchan's 39 Steps. It's a, like a girl's own adventure story with love thrown in. So it's like a, for boys, but with love in. So boys wouldn't be interested in it because from an early age, we're taught not to want to read stories that have love in them. My tongue is in my cheek there. Okay, you can't see it because I'm doing it on audio, not video. Anyway, that's all. I'm sure I'll have more to say at part three. Yeah, call to action, call to action. The only thing I want to say to you, actually, everything's going swimmingly. So if you could just pass it on by word of mouth to people who you think would like the podcast, then please do. If you could just share it and we can continue our soaring to success and beat Joe Rogan at his own game. And if you don't know who he is, (laughs) Google it. Okay, there we are. It is late. I'm tired. My mind is even hazier than normal. So I hope you're all well. I'm well. The seagulls are well. I don't have a little cat or a dog to say they're well. I used to have both. My old mates. Little sad pause there. Okay, enough of this. Onward. Isn't that so? Isn't that so? Isn't that so?